Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, as we kind of think about strategic plan, uh, part of that is certainly thinking about our city. So I want to take a moment and just celebrate our beautiful city, the city of Little Rock, affectionately nicknamed in 2006 by its own citizens, The Rock. And so as we talk about The Rock, I wanted today to start by celebrating some things that I love about this city. I've actually, this is my adopted state in my adopted city. I grew up in the Dallas area, love Dallas as well, but um, one of the things uh, I've appreciated about Little Rock, the first time we came here was in the 1990s when uh, I was called to be the youth minister here at Calvary. And we were meeting with our realtor just a little bit south of here in the Prospect Building. She was up on a, an upper floor. And I remember going up there and just looking out that window out west and was just shocked at the beautiful trees and the rolling hills and you could see very few houses. It was just like you were in a forest. And that was very different than where I grew up. And I just love the natural beauty of, uh, of our state and certainly our city. I also love the fact that we um, are big enough as a city to have big city amenities. And uh, my wife likes that too, especially the shopping amenities. But uh, we're small enough to still kind of have that small town, hometown feel. And there's truly what I would call a southern hospitality value that we still see here in, uh, among Little Rockians. Um, I also uh, just love some of the, the, the social venues. I love the river market, uh, really both sides. We, we have... Uh, I think it's Argenta on the uh, North Little Rock side, and then you got the River Market on our side. Fantastic. Love all the food that comes out of this city. Love the heights. Right here where we're at, it's a beautiful area with um, very original restaurants. If you haven't tried them all out, I can tell you all of them. Uh, fantastic place to eat, but also to walk. If you want to just kind of walk in some beautiful neighborhoods, come up here to the church park here, and then just walk either that way or that way, and you'll find beautiful neighborhoods uh, that are um, just very, very peaceful and enjoyable. I love these things about our city. Uh, we don't have the huge traffic that my hometown has, Dallas. I like that about Little Rock. Uh, but the best thing for me is I love the outdoor opportunities. I mean, it's just fantastic to, just within minutes, to be on a beautiful hiking trail or even hiking up Pinnacle Mountain or the bike trails or the walking trails or the river and the lakes and the 
paddleboat sports and all those things. It's right here, right among us. We can celebrate our beautiful, beautiful city, the rock. But we have to recognize that there is one major blight on our city's resume. One very kind of tragic tarnish to our city's reputation. And that is that we are known as one of the most dangerous cities in the nation. And that's because if you look at the violent crime per capita, or if you look at murders per capita, we rank among the top. And so we need to deal with this. This is our problem. It's our city, our beloved city. And uh, we have to, we all have to come together to figure out how do we fix this problem? How do we solve this problem? Some would say, well, you're going to solve it. It's, a, it's more of a youth or gang problem. Others would say it's a socioeconomic problem. Some would say uh, we need more police officers. It's a law enforcement problem. Some would say we need less guns. Some would say it's a, a political problem. We need different leadership. But what we need to all agree upon today here is that above all, first and foremost, this is a spiritual problem. Why do I say that? Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, where we've been studying the book of Exodus and now have been camped here in Exodus 20 for several weeks, looking at the Ten Commandments, we find one of the most concise commandments, one of the most uh, terse commandments, if you will, in Exodus 20, verse 13. It's the sixth commandment. And it simply reads, four words in my English Bible translation, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. No explanation, probably because no explanation is needed. You shall not murder. It's actually even more concise in the original Hebrew. It's only two words in Hebrew. And if you took those words and put them into English, it might say, murder not. Or even better, never murder, with an exclamation point. And so this is, this is the commandment that we need to look at today. And it's certainly a commandment that our beautiful, beloved city struggles to obey. So, as we think about it, we need to think about it in the positive. What is it saying? It says we need to be life givers as God's people. We need to be a people who are life sustainers or even better, life preservers and never be a people that takes away life. And that's really at the heart of this. We, we also know, and I think we need to talk about what this is not and what it is. First of all, it is not a prohibition against capital punishment. How do we know that? If you keep reading through the Old Testament and the Old Testament laws, we see that capital punishment was put in place, and in part it was put in place 
to defend the sixth commandment and basically hold the people of God accountable to following the sixth commandment, meaning if you violate this, if you do commit murder, it's a very high probability that you will lose your life as well. And so we have, it's not talking about capital punishment. It's not talking about self-defense. We also have illustrations in the biblical law that allowed for self-defense. The killing of an intruder for self-defense is specifically mentioned. We also know, if you read the full story of the Scriptures in the Old Testament, that it does not prohibit holy or just war. For God does ultimately call His people to go to war. What I do think it includes is one of the most tragic types of murder, and that's suicide. It does include suicide. That means suicide is a sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. I think the church has mistaught that at times. And I know if you've... um, had to deal with this in your family. You know how heartbreaking it is. And so we know that. Murder really is, our suicide is self-murder. And it is a sin, but not the unpardonable sin. We also, I would say, I very much uh, believe that life begins at conception. So this would prohibit abortion. And then I also believe that it prohibits euthanasia. And uh, there are some things maybe we should just briefly mention about those other two qualities. First of all, if you're pro-life like me, you need to remember that being pro-life is more than just being pro-birth. It's really a commitment to helping these children not only survive, but thrive. And investing in all the things that will need, that, that are needed to make that happen. It's a, if you're pro-life, you need to live missionally. It's more than just your vote. And we need to remember that as a church family. In terms of euthanasia, we need to remind ourselves that uh, we live in a world where there's medical advancements. I'm a very big believer in palliative care, and that's simply taking care, making sure people in their last stages of life can stay comfortable using medicines to help them do that. But there is a fine line that we must not cross where we allow medicines to start basically speeding the death of a person. So these are just some of the the dynamics of what this commandment is saying and what it's not saying, what it prohibits and what it doesn't prohibit. I mentioned some of those things that I just said about um, suicide, murder, and euthanasia. Just mainly for preventative reasons. If there's anyone here that's at a low point in your life and just really depressed or struggling or thinking about taking your life, you just need to know that is not God's will. And you need a family to come alongside you. We want to be that family. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. We want to give you the support, the biblical counsel, all that you need to... uh, to overcome that that issue. And the same is true for abortion. If anyone is at a point where they're thinking about that, please let us in. Let us help. Let us come alongside you. Let us encourage you with uh, that situation as well as the one about euthanasia. So, this is what 
we're dealing with. This is our topic for today. There are some biblical examples where we see, and the reason I'm going to share these, I'm just going to share a few, we're going to see God's response when this commandment is not obeyed, when people actually commit murder. And we see, tragically, there are a lot of murders mentioned in the Bible. I'm just going to mention three, but as I do this, I want you to see how God responds to each one of them. The first one is the very first murder in the Bible. It occurs in Genesis chapter 4, where Adam and Eve's son, Cain, actually gets jealous of his brother Abel, and then uh, in a premeditated response, sets him up and then violently kills his brother. The first murder in the Bible. And God, of course, is very aware of when this happens and immediately, it seems, confronts Cain and he asks him a question, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says the famous line, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And then God responds by telling Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And then he says, you will be held accountable. And your judgment is that you now will be cursed. And the ground that you cultivate as a farmer will no longer cooperate. And you will become a restless wanderer for the rest of your life. It was a very strong and harsh punishment. Cain even responds to that saying, my punishment is almost too much for me to bear. So what we see in this story is that God, of course, sees everything. He knows everything. And he responds to this sin of murder with judgment that is just. Responds quickly, decisively, and emphatically. Story number two. If you come to 1 Kings chapter 21, we are reading about a wicked king named Ahab who has an even more wicked or evil wife named Jezebel, the queen. I call her the wicked witch of the north because she came from the north of Israel, Phoenicia. And the story is that Ahab, the king, wants a particular vineyard owned by a man named Naboth. And uh, he goes to Naboth, tries to buy the vineyard, but Naboth doesn't want to sell it because it's part of his family inheritance. And he's attached to this particular vineyard and land and tells the king he's not going to sell. Well, Ahab comes back and begins to kind of pout about this to his wife, the queen Jezebel. And she says, aren't you the king? And basically says, I'll take care of this for you. And then she arranges for Naboth's murder. And when it happens, then she takes the land and gives it the vineyard and gives it to her husband. Well, again, God sees, God knows, and God responds. Sends the prophet Elijah to Ahab. Says, what have you done? Says, you've committed the murder of an innocent man. And so the judgment for that is that you and Jezebel will meet a violent death 
and there will be disaster that comes over your family, your sons. God sees, God knows. God responds with just judgment. A final example is um, King David. Beloved King David, the man after God's own heart, has a very bad moment. Very bad. And he ends up, as his army's off to war, he ends up lusting after a woman named Bathsheba, ends up having an adulterous relationship with her, and she gets pregnant. And so David calls her husband off of the battlefield. He was a soldier fighting in David's army to come back, give a report, and expects him then to go and sleep with his wife to cover up his sin. But Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is far too noble to do that. He comes back, gives the report, but because of his colleagues, his fellow soldiers that could not come back and be with their wives, he refuses to go home. And after several attempts, we know David then sends Uriah back to the front lines and he's carrying his own uh, death orders. And basically the message that David sends is for the commander to send Uriah to the front lines withdraw the troops, knowing that that would produce his death. So did David get away with it? Of course not. God sees all, he knows all, and he responds with just judgment. David's confronted by Nathan the prophet. Realizes that his secret is not a secret. And uh, basically, God tells David... Here's the consequences. Disaster will befall your family. You will have lots of suffering within your family. A dysfunctional, chaotic family. And not only that, but the little child that uh, was conceived with you and Bathsheba will not live. So all of this is just to say, God sees, God knows, and God always responds with just judgment. This is a very, as we know, a very serious sin that always produces terrible destruction. Not just with the victims and the victims' families, but really also with the perpetrators and their families. Terrible consequences are a result of this sin. Why is it so bad? Well, one is it's so final. The finality of this. And we know that as Christ followers, we're not just designed for this earthly life, but we know we only get one earthly life. And when somebody robs us of our own lives or someone else that we love's life, that is a terrible, terrible sin. It's also a violation of really our very first human right, the right to live. But we also know from Scripture that there's an even more uh, theological reason why this is such a serious sin. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the very first chapter in the Bible where God is creating the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 
and 27 tell us about how God creates man on the sixth day. Listen to what he says. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and all, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So man is unique among all of the created things and living creatures in that we alone are created in the image of God. In some way, we reflect who God is. In some way, we are like God. Now, what way is that? Well, I think we can find a lot of similarities in attributes. For instance, our God is a rational God. We too are rational beings. We also know that we are relational creatures, and God is very relational. We know that we were created and given the privilege of dominion or ruling over other parts of creation. Of course, God has that quality. He rules over all. We know that we are moral beings. God, of course, is a moral being. We know that we have a free will. God has a free will. We know that we are spiritual beings who were created with souls that are designed to live for eternity, to exist for eternity. That is completely unique from the rest of the living creatures. So all of this is just saying that human beings are literally sacred because we are made in the image of God. And that's why this is such a serious sin, such a, a serious commandment. And so we need to understand why that is the case, why it is such a serious and bad thing. You know, Jesus weighs in on this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees really felt like this is one of those commandments that they could easily check off. Remember, these guys were kind of legalists. They loved the law. They de dedicated their lives to the law, and they were trying to defend the law. That's what their whole lives and theology were focused upon. And so they would say, oh, man, yes, Sixth commandment, let's check that box and move on. Just like maybe some of us today would say, well, of course, I've never committed murder and I never will. Let's check this box and just move on to the next one. We got this one down, Pastor. Well, not so fast, my friends, not so fast. Listen to what Jesus says about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 of Matthew Verse 21 and following. Matthew 5, 21 and following. It says, this is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So in essence, he's quoting the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. But then in verse 22, he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, 
is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is teaching us is that this is not, this law is not intended just to be followed in terms of the letter of the law, but God expects us to also understand and follow and obey the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law has to do with our heart attitude towards others, towards our neighbors. And so if we are angry towards a neighbor, then we are literally killing them in our hearts. If we speak derogatory words towards them, then we are violating, we are murdering them in our hearts. Most theologians believe Jesus is connecting his teaching here to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 16 through 18 says this, Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, this last part of the Ten Commandments is all focused upon loving our neighbors. And we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. So basically, he is saying, if you and I slander another person, if you and I hate somebody else, if any of us are seeking revenge or holding a grudge against anyone, then we are violating the law, this law. The law, do not murder. So when we begin thinking of it this way, we need to realize we have to erase that little check mark in the box. Before we can check that box and check off this command, we have to check our hearts before Jesus. And probably as we're talking about this, God is revealing someone in your life that you have held some type of, um, of issue with. What does he continue to say here? If there is something between you and your brother, anger in your heart or a grudge or hatred or that there's been slander or words that should not have been said, then you are called to immediately go and deal with that directly and try everything you can to reconcile. That's what comes here in Matthew 5 right after Jesus talks about this. He says, reconcile and reconcile quickly with your brother so that you do not commit murder against him or her. So before we can check off our boxes, we have to check our hearts before God. Well, I want to close with talking about uh, what some philosophers or ethical teachers call a moral dilemma. And they'll use this dilemma to kind of help students, and particularly if they're Christian students, think through their values. This is a, a story, maybe you've heard it in different forms or fashions. I'm going to kind of contemporize it with our Arkansas setting. Let's just say you are out on one of our beautiful Ozark 
mountain rivers. And you're on a canoe trip and enjoying this beautiful river. You're on it shortly after a rain, so the water's up and it's flowing fast and swift. And uh, you come around the curve and you realize there is a kind of a dangerous part of the river. Water is moving very fast, really heavy rapids, and it's taking you directly towards what whitewater paddlers call a strainer. Strainer is like when a tree falls into the river and half of its branches are under the water and half are on top of it. And, uh, and the water's pushing you right towards that. It's a very deadly thing. Because what happens if you are in the water and you come up to that tree, that strainer, the water will suck you under it and you'll get trapped on the branches. Well, you realize this, so you pull off to the side quickly and um, you're going to try to see if you need to help anybody else that's coming behind you. You happen to have your beloved dog on this float trip. And he hops out of the canoe as well. And as soon as you get out of the boat, your, suspect, your suspicion is confirmed. Another canoe is coming around the bend, tumps over, and a person is in that rapid headed towards that strainer. And your dog gets excited, sees all the debris, jumps in the water, and also gets in the current headed towards the deadly strainer. You have seconds to respond. And you can only save one of them. And you know that the result of the other will be death. Which one are you going to save? That's the dilemma. Are you going to save your dog that you know and that you love? Or are you going to save this stranger that you do not know at all? It's the classic tension between feelings and values. And in this case, it's a, it's a case between our feelings and God's values. Which one are you going to choose? As they've given this scenario, a lot of, uh, I read about a teacher, he's given it for 40 years to his students. And he says, almost always, it's a, it's a split. A third choose their dog to save their dog. A third choose to save the person and another third say they just can't choose. They just have to see what happened in the moment. And he said, that's been pretty consistent. I've looked it up more recently, and um, the numbers are much higher. The percentages are much higher in the surveys I've seen of those who would choose their dog. In fact, there was one little interview online where this question was posed in a different format, and it was at a vegan conference, and it was 100%. Dogs for everyone. But for us, God expects us to make a choice. And we know what choice God expects us to make. I too love my dog, but I know if that happens, I must choose you. And I hope you will choose me. The point is, for us, as we think about our beloved city, we can't solve the murder problem in our city, or in our nation, or in our culture, or in our world, 
until we first solve our own heart problem. Because that's really what this reveals. If you have tension here, it's a signal that you have a heart problem. The truth is, many of us don't even like our neighbors, don't even care about our neighbors, much less love our neighbors. And the truth is, many of us don't care about our neighbors who are kind of living on what we would call the other side of the tracks. And some of them are living in a virtual war zone, just miles from here. Do you care about them? Will you love them? If we will start loving our neighbors as ourselves, as God teaches, then we can actually save our neighbors and subsequently save our city. And I am using that term in varied ways. We can save our neighbors and save our city. So before we check the box and say that we've got this sixth commandment down, we all need to check our hearts. And we need to remember God sees it all. He knows our hearts. And God will judge justly. No one gets away with murder on God's watch. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.